Hello, you are very welcome to episode 184 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop gaming. My name's Ronan and I'm your host for this episode and it is a Picking Over the Bones episode, which is the name we give to our review shows. Now, it's going to be a slightly different Picking Over the Bones episode this time. You may be able to tell that my voice is a bit croaky. I'm slightly under the weather. Don't worry, I'm coming out of it. Nothing serious, just a bit of a virus going round at the moment. So I'm going to try and talk for not too long. Now, the reason I wanted to get an episode out was there is a huge event looming on the horizon, Spiel 2022. Sean and I are heading across to Essen for four days to grab a load of games, play a load of games, and basically enjoy what's going on over there for the first time in a while, which is going to be amazing. However, from after this episode... What we're going to try and do is get to you a few of our thoughts about games that have caught our eye prior to the show. And then obviously once we've been there and we come back and we bring some games back, we're going to want to play all those new Essen games. But I had a bunch of games that I have been playing recently that I wanted to get my thoughts out about, but I've been waiting to feel a bit better (laughs) and I just haven't. So apologies for the voice, apologies for some choppy editing. If I burst into coffee in the middle of a word and try and fix it and Possibly apologies for some of the brevity of the reviews, although looking at my notes, I probably can't stop myself talking for longer than I should be. Anyway, with that said, we're going to move on and kick into the reviews. And the first game I want to review is called Sniper Elite. One to four players, around 60 minutes. That's a tiny bit short for me. Coming from Rebellion Unplugged. Now, Rebellion are a computer game company. Sniper Elite is a computer game. Rebellion Unplugged, obviously, is their physical game branch of Rebellion. The designers are Roger Tansley and David Thompson, who, I mean, his name is everywhere, all over the place. The way the game plays is that one of the players is going to be the sniper, the elite sniper, and they can be going around a map. And on the map, wherever it may be, there are various ones available. You get two in the base game. There are numbered objectives. And the sniper's going to have drawn two cards. They're kind of weighted so that your two objectives can't be too close to each other. But they've got to get to both those objectives and do whatever they're supposed to do. There are are thematic things you do. It doesn't matter. You just take an action and say, I'm completing my objective. Now, the sniper has got 10 turns to move around the map and do their objective. However, once they complete their first objective, that countdown resets back to 10 turns again. Uh, And they have to get the second objective done in that time. And if they do, they win. And if they don't or they get killed, they lose on their turn. The sniper can choose to move. They can sit still if they think that's the wisest thing. And they can move slowly. And then it doesn't matter if they're moving near any of the soldiers who are played by the other team because the soldiers can't detect them. But if they move fast around the map, they can be detected. They can also choose to shoot to take out a soldier that is within sight of them. There are various rules about line of sight. And they draw from a bag, draw chits, and they can kill a soldier. But what it does is give the opposition team some idea of where the sniper may be. The one other thing they can do is they can use sort of kit cards at the beginning of the game before you start. You choose from a small selection and you declare, I'm playing this card. And some of them go face up, not many. Most of them are face down. And they're going to allow you to sort of break the rules a little bit. And you can also get more by going on objectives and declaring I'm, I'm collecting kit. from, But it tells the other team that you're somewhere on an objective. And the sort of thing they can do is like, you can't usually move into the space that a soldier is on, although they can move into yours and have to declare yourself. But you can sort of move them out of the way or 
you can move fast for this one turn and no one will hear you as you run. There's it, like mines you can lay. If a soldier walks into that area, they blow up. They're all cool, but every single bit of information you give out is is information that the, the soldiers will pour over. Now, speaking about the other team, the other soldiers, there's three zones on the board of different colours. There is a set of soldiers for each colour, yellow, red and black, and they come with one officer and two soldiers. And in their attempt, they basically get two actions per team per turn. They can do like a zone sweep of both their actions and say, are you in the red area of the map? Yes or no, simple as that. They can search in three spaces adjacent to them. So if you're in any of those spaces, don't know which one. They can attack in the space that they're in. And they also have special powers, one for each team that they can use. And again, kind of break the rules or bend the rules a bit. Like you can have dogs that you can put watching a certain space on the board. Or you can be the person who can shoot into an adjacent space, not just in your own space. So there's slight variance in what everyone can do. Now, the key to a game like this is how the maps work. Now, there are, like I said, there's two maps in the base box. One is basic and everything's on the same level. The other one has got higher levels. So you have to think about that when you're choosing your actions of what you can do. There are buildings on both of them. And what the builders do is basically create routes, which means it's not just a running around anywhere. There are very specific routes around the place. And one of the main strategies for the soldiers is to block routes off. Because as I said, the sniper can't move through any soldier and that's so you can narrow down where they can be well you hope you can narrow it down in sniper elite both sides feel constantly close to losing the sniper has a feeling of constant danger if i get found here it could be over because the sniper only has two hit points and the soldiers are in a bit of a panic because they always feel like they've got this information than they want to have and they always feel like they're stabbing in the dark which you are to some degree but you never feel clueless and the fact that you're stabbing in the dark is you only got hit twice with those stabs and you've won. So it has a, a feeling of peril all the way through for both sides. And that is kind of one of the most oppressive things about Sniper Elite. One of the worst things is the sniper shooting mechanism. You think in a game called Sniper, the shooting would be exciting. It's really not. Almost an auto hit and almost without danger unless certain things happen within the game. The only option is you're choosing whether to shoot or not. You don't want to be shooting every single turn because you're giving away at least vaguely what area of the board that you're in and going undercover can be very powerful. In terms of the whole overall product, there's minimal components for what I think is lots of gameplay. I think Sniper Elite has got the potential to be a crossover here due to the theme, due to the relatively simple mechanisms, due to the, the way it plays and the tension around the table. But in fact, that tension is possibly one of the things holding it back because it can get a little bit narky. It's one of those games with this hidden movement and the secrets and you're guessing and you have to be quite understanding of, of everyone on your team, especially as the soldiers, but also with the sniper as well. And there has to be sort of an agreed, this is going to be played in good humour. Otherwise, like any of these games of hidden movement, you can get a little bit moody. I love the tension. I love the fact that it's very quick turns. Both sides feel involved. Everyone always feels like that they're performing something. And for me, Sniper Elite has been a big hit. And in our score, I'm giving it a very good 82 and as we constantly remind you, anything over 80, we consider to be really a very top-notch game. It's hard to get into the top, top, top levels of ratings unless you have many, many repeated plays for us, having played games for a while now. That's Sniper Elite. High recommendation. Next one we'll talk about is Tabanusi, one to four players. About 120 minutes to play, that's about right. It's from Board and Dice. David Spadler and Yeli Tashini. And in Tabanusi, you're building up a city. There are three zones in which you can build. 
And as well as building buildings in these zones of three different colours that aren't linked to the zones, they're just three different colours of buildings, you're going to build canals alongside them and gardens in order to sort of boost your own scoring when buildings are built next to where your gardens are. The reason you're doing that is to boost up tracks because there'll be various scorings of each area and the higher up you are on a track for building colours, the more each of your buildings in those three areas are going to score for you. There's also a port area in which you can sort of manipulate ships when you build in order to get bonuses. You can build harder harbour master little huts to get stuff. The main mechanism is that you have two workers, but really one is sort of a leader and one's, one's the main man actually follows. You're in an area with the both of them at the beginning of your turn and you choose a die. Now, the number on the die tells you what area of the board you're going to go to next turn. There are five areas and the six is wild. And then, so you move one worker across to that's where I'm going next turn, and then you do your action in that area. When you take a die, they count as resources. They come in five colours. Three of them are linked to the colour of buildings, and one's for building water, and one's for building gardens on top of that water. When you're in the area, there are basic actions for each area, and then there are some randomised actions that go in. They're always the same each game, but they appear in different areas. But in the end, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be claiming spaces on the board for which you need claim tokens, which you need to manage how many claim tokens you have available to you during the course of the game. You can get them for various things, for our actions and bonuses. The same as everything here. You can also build your buildings, obviously. Uh, like I said, the dices are the resources. You have to claim the spaces. There's a limit how many buildings of each colour you can build in each area. And buildings the same kind of can't be adjacent to each other and stuff. There are rules about how you build these buildings. But basically getting them up and getting up the temple tracks associated with the colour of buildings is how you're going to score most of your points. Like I said, you can build canals because the city is adjacent to water and the canals lead from the water in and then you can put gardens on top of the canals. problem with that is that it's a two-step process and it feels kind of slow to do. And what you're doing in doing it is setting yourself up for bonuses when other people build. But if you set your canals up before someone else's builds, they will tend not to build next to you and claim those spaces. You want people to claim spaces, then you put canals next to them and then they build on top of them. But generally the claiming and building happens too quickly for you to be able to build both canals and gardens in order for it to be useful. So that's an idea that doesn't necessarily come off in action. The other action area is the port area is an absolute waste of time. Useless. I really don't know why it's in the game. It, all it adds is rules overhead and minor bonuses which may or may not be useful to you. Genuinely, if I take a pair of scissors and cut that area out of the board... I'd be much happier with this game and do something else with your number four dice. The temple area is an odd one, in which that's kind of supposed to be the main way in which you drive up these tracks to score for your buildings. Now, while whatever you think of driving up tracks in order to boost scores, it's a thing that is in this T-series of games. The problem here is that I said that there are actions that kind of get randomising at one per space. So, like the the brown area always has three same actions, which are the same in the wire, same in the other area, the same actions. You're just claiming or you're building or you're doing gardens. They have a random one in there. These random actions, one of them allows you to pay a couple of points to go up on tracks. Very, very simple to do. You don't need anything. There's no prerequisites. You just choose that action. Now, while you're paying points, going up the tracks get you bonuses. Not only does it score you for your buildings, but also going up the tracks scores you points sometimes. So you end up going to an area... I'll spend four points to go up the tracks twice. Okay, spend four points, you get nine points back, and you've boosted your buildings. Why wouldn't you do it? Just having that action in the game almost eliminates the temple area, which I'd also be fine with. Because for me, with Tabanusi, there's a good core idea 
a kind of idea of spatial awareness and building and resource scarcity. And the resource scarcity they kind of almost ran away from because there's gold in the game, which you can spend as any resource, which is fine if gold is scarce, but it's not. And it's via all these little bonus actions because you constantly get bonus actions doing all sorts of stuff, building in areas, claiming areas, going to the port, whatever it might be. You get a lot of gold is what I'm trying to say. So you never really get stuck for resources. So they ran away from the resource scarcity. I kind of feel like they ran away from the idea that we can make a really good game here about this building and the spatial awareness and not being able to build next to each other and putting throwing canals in. And they could have made a tight 60-minute Euro that focused on one or two mechanisms and really made them good. Instead, they got to a point where this isn't particularly working, this building system. It's okay, but we haven't quite got it to work. Let's just throw a load of other stuff on it and bonuses and variety for variety's sake and things that don't mean anything and and just ruin the economy by making it all too loosey-goosey and turn it into a two-hour game where not a lot of what you do feels very consequential so the core of the game is okay and decent it kind of requires players to to interact and decide they're going to play with each other you can just build up i'm going to build all brown buildings you build all white buildings you build all yellow buildings it's better with more than three players because then people can't just specialize in one type of building and it's forced into conflict although then the players who aren't conflicting over color might get a big advantage it's just got issues with it and i wish that they had honed in on the core rather than sticking more and more onto it and turn it into a flabby two-hour euro that wasn't great. So Tabernusi gets 42 from me. Next up is Welcome to the Moon. Now, there's a few games here that I mentioned last time around in the review of 2021 that I won't labour over. It's one six players, 30 minutes per game, Blue Cocker games, Alexis Allard and Benoit Turpin. It's a flip and right. If you've played any Welcome to games or variants, you'll know how this works. It keeps that structure in that... On each turn, there's going to be three cards flipped over. You're going to get a number with an associated symbol and you're going to write that number somewhere on your own sheet and the symbol's going to give you some sort of action you can do. In Welcome to the Moon, it's not just a variant on Welcome 2, although it kind of is. It's eight variants on Welcome 2. It's an eight-game campaign in which we're forced to leave Earth and on the first map you're preparing to leave and then you do the flight to the moon and then when you're on the moon, various things happen. And I won't go further than that because there are some things... I mean, it's narrative. It's, it's not the most narrative game ever, but there's no need for me to get into what the themes are of the later maps. You can discover that for yourself. Now, the actions that are linked to the cards all make sense throughout the eight maps so that each time you learn a new map, you're not learning wildly different rules and you're not struggling to remember, oh, what does this one do? What does that one do? Like that leaf symbol, well, it constantly relates to plants in some way. The ward symbol constantly relates to water in some way. So there's a thematic run-through there that helps you learn and focus on the changes of rules because the changes of rules is what changes your priorities is what drives the variety between each of the maps and some of the maps you can really hone in and focus and try and rush the game and some of the maps can become a bit more of a slow burn and you're trying to make it perfect and you have to slightly be aware of what the other players are doing because if someone is trying to rush the game you're going to have to react to that and you kind of sometimes have to judge whether a map can be rushed or not because some can and some can't one of the, I will talk about one of the maps, there's a virus breaks out. And while you're worrying about scoring, you're also worrying about containing certain areas. But you have to kind of prioritise which ones are more likely to trigger off. And that is driven by the other players a lot of the time. So you do have to be aware of what they're doing. And oh no, you're about to trigger that virus, so I have to close this down quickly. Because once the virus breaks out, it becomes a nightmare for you. 
And then once the virus has broken out, perhaps then it's your decision to go, right, I need to finish this. Because the more that spreads, the less likely I am to win. And these things are happening within a 30-minute flipping right each time you play. Very interesting what they've done. I thought they'd struggle and run out of ideas and we might be playing sort of very similar things again and again. And that's a fine line to walk between the familiarity of rules so I'm not constantly struggling to remember what I'm trying to do, but being too similar so I don't feel like this is actually varied. And they've done it very, very well here. I always say the flip, not roll suits me because it's got a bit more structure to it. If I've seen a lot of 15s, then there's no more 15s coming out until we shuffle those cards or wherever it might be. I just feel like I can make slightly better decisions with the flip and right. Welcome to the Moon comes in a small box. It's compact. It's fast paced. It's varied. It's challenging, especially for me because I'm absolutely terrible at it. I came last in our campaign. I've only played the campaign once, by the way, and you play eight times through and you think that would be enough. Actually, after you've played the campaign once through, it unlocks further content. And it's all just cards. It's just new cards that come into play with different goals and different things. I don't know what happens after the first campaign because that's as far as I've got, but I have at least finished that. For us, it's been a huge hit and it gets a very rare score of over 90 in one of these Picking Over the Bones episodes. And I give Welcome to the Moon a 92. If you listened to the last episode, you know I liked it a lot. Well, that's how much I liked it. I think it's a fantastic product. And if you have any interest in rolling rights or flipping rights, I would suggest getting Welcome to the Moon because it kind of supplies everything you could ever want. For as I'm concerned, as long as you don't mind wringing out your brain a bit. Now, speaking about wringing out your brain, Imperium Classics, one to four players, 90 minutes, Osprey Games, Nigel Buckle and David Turksey. You heard this discussed a fair bit last episode. So um, I'll, g- I'll give you my fuller thoughts on it. I know it wasn't a huge hit with Sean and Matthew as discussed. It's a deck builder in which each player is going to control one peoples, be it the Romans or the Greeks or the Scythians or the Celts or whoever it might be. You start with an available deck of cards and you can add to that deck from various sources. There's always a market available of generic cards that are in every game, although they come out in different orders each time. There's lands, there's buildings, there's other sort of minor nations, minor peoples you can you can conquer. And they all do different things and they're all quite thematic. And these minor people might come in and help you once off and then disappear or they might keep you going or give you a bonus. There's cards that when you play them, they stay in play and give you a constant almost resource income or a constant set of symbols that if your people suit it, if your deck suits it, you can constantly mine them if you like or use them to drive forward what you're doing because each of the different decks works very differently to each other and they have their own starting nation deck but they can go through that while you're in the state called barbarian and once you get through that nation deck and you get the last card out of it and they come out in a random order each game which can be very important and can stimmy you or can boost you but once you get through that nation deck you become an empire and certain cards you have you can no longer play but certain cards become available to you, both from the market and then also from your own development deck. And then you can start developing through your development deck, and that will give you ways of scoring points and extra actions. Now, the size of the nation deck and how long you're going to be a barbarian for before you go to Empire is very thematic, because if your Empire was strong earlier and before whatever they decided the historical cutoff point is, you will be a barbarian for longer, but your deck will work like that. If you're one of the sort of the nations that are slightly further forward in time within the setting of Imperium Classics, you're likely to be a barbarian for a short amount of time. So you have to be careful about your barbarian cards or getting more barbarian cards because you're not going to be able to play them quite early in the game. You're going straight to Empire 
And from there, you're looking to build up and do whatever it is your nation does. For example, if you're warlike, there's a glory deck in every game and your cards will drive you towards accessing that glory deck and taking the glory cards and they will be scoring you points. If you're more of an economic nation, then possibly you might be building up those lands I was talking about that give you symbols and you'll have cards that come up to you that allow you to use those symbols and repin bonuses and repin goods and you score points for the goods. There's a very clever mechanism whereby some cards come up, usually personalities, which is like, you know, Julius Caesar might come up, or Alexander the Great, or his dad, Philip, whatever. They come up, you get them, they have a powerful impact, and then they go into your history. So they're all still available with you to score at the end, but your history means they tuck under your card and you never see them again. And that's nice that they come up, they flare, they shine bright, and then they go away. I think that's a really clever mechanism. And there are lots of very thematic, clever touches within the card play that speak to the actual history of the people whom you are playing. That doesn't mean it necessarily translates to a thrilling game, however. It's very solitaire, apart from negative interactions. And that can be difficult because you get certain decks versus other decks and they just, one side won't win. The Celts, for example, add a lot of, of unrest. It's one of the ways the game can end. Everyone gets loads of unrest. It doesn't really happen because you keep on top of it. But the Celts will attack you with unrest, attack you with unrest, and get very early access to the glory deck and be reaping all those points, while certain other slower nations that, that want to get to economy and build up will just not be able to keep up with them and get absolutely destroyed. And there's not a lot you can do about it. Now, someone might tell me after 200 games, you can do this, you can do that. I'm talking about the experience. I've played this half a dozen, seven, eight, whatever it is, times. So I'm telling you that as a gamer, playing it that often, I sit there feeling helpless. Or I sit there going, I'm winning this and I'm not really doing anything to win it. I'm just playing the cards that have been fed to me. And that's a lot of the game. You are just playing the cards that are fed to you. You're playing the story that's already been written. The historical touches are fantastic, but that story's been told one, two, three thousand years ago. I'm just running through that story. The cards can come out in different orders, okay, but they're still driving me to do the same thing. There are still certain key cards that when I get them out, that will drive how I score points with this particular deck. The problem is, because it's particular cards that score points for particular decks, the rule book is too generic. So it doesn't tell you how to play the game. It just says, here's a game, here's some stuff, go ahead and play. But you don't know what you're doing and you don't know how to win until you start playing. And it takes a few games to start realising, oh, these all do different things. What does this one do? What does that one do? I need to learn my nation deck. Once you learn your nation deck, you're like, well, this is what I do with this deck. And I think the whole way in which this game was released, to me, was a big mistake, including launching Imperial Legends at the same time as Imperium Classics. Imperium Legends is a nightmare to learn because they are all more complicated peoples in there. And some of them completely bend round the rules that you haven't learned yet because there's no generic way to learn. And if you bought Legend to start trying to play this game from there and you managed it, then well done because that was just absolutely mind-bending and a huge mistake. And if you were going to release it in two boxes, Legends had to come six months or a year down the line when people were used to playing the game. In my opinion, they would have been better off selling this as a smaller two-player game with two nations that they decided were balanced against each other. And you say, right, might sound boring, Here's Imperium, Romans versus Greeks. doesn't cost that much. It's all the generic cards and these two nations play that. I think it would have been smarter to then release two nations at a time to allow people to build up their understanding of how they work and to mix and match. 
And then you're selling expansion packs, which are cheaper, which are two decks of cards, small decks of cards. But you can charge people like 15 quid a go or whatever. And eventually, they end up paying 80 quid for this game instead of paying 40, 50 quid for it. Because if they want to, because they're buying all these expansion packs. And then you can release Legends as further expansion packs. And you're keeping the interest going. And people are able to learn the game. And the first rule book that you write is how you play Romans versus Greeks. And tells you exactly how to play that game. So people can understand how to play the game and get used to it. And then the next one says, here's the differences for playing, I don't know, Scythians versus Celts. Don't do that, you'll lose your Scythians. But Scythians versus Celts. You go, That's, that, these are the differences these two make. Now we'll release the next one. These are the differences these two make. I in my head, when I stopped and looked and thought of this about how badly it was it was given out, that was my thought. And I, well, I'm not a publisher. What do I know? It's confusing. It's got great elements to it. You feel railroaded. There are a few too many dull turns. There are too many imbalanced matchups. Should have been presented better. But it's close to being a great game. And it could have been. And I would still play it. And I've enjoyed games of it. I just get frustrated with it. So Imperium Classics, to me, is a 66. Okay, two more games you all mentioned last time out. And you know that I like both of them. So again, let's not hang around. Waste Nights, second edition, one to four players. 180 minutes, maybe. Galacta. Marek Midal and Pavel Svech. Post-apocalyptic Australia with nuclear radiation and mutants and having a salvage tech. And whatever the scenario is, you're going to have a narrative setup in which you make some decisions, choose your own adventure, basically. Then you go out and explore the land and there will be things that you're being asked to do within the land, goals that are set up for you, which will depend to some degree upon your choices within the setup. You wander around the map, you find stuff, you fight things, you try and improve yourself a bit. You get to a certain point where you've got to go back again. And certainly in the first scenario, and I've only played this four times, so I've only played the first scenario itself, so I don't know how much variance there is going out beyond that. But in those four plays, in the first scenario, you get to a certain point, you've got to get back, and then you go back into the choose-your-own-adventure book again. And, and I think that that is the basic structure to how the game plays. Quite an extended choose-your-own-adventure so this is a game very much of two halves in which you make some choices. You go out and play on the map. Playing on the map is tough. You don't feel very powerful. It's swingy. If you click in and get a couple of good pieces of, of equipment, you start winning and you start getting more and more stuff. If you don't, it can be frustrating for a player because they constantly feel like they're getting beaten up. They constantly feel like they're not getting anything. They're losing every encounter. They're just spending their time healing and trudging and healing and trudging and failing. That can be tough for someone. The flip side of that is that when you do achieve a goal or you do find a really good piece of kit, it's actually worth celebrating. It's like, oh, I need to get there. I've got my Laz sword. This is incredible. So, yes, the frustration can be bad, but it gives you the high of, well, we've actually achieved something here. And that is really good. I'm going to say it's a game feature rather than a negative or a positive. If you, are you willing to accept that it can be hard? But, yeah, okay. Well, you'll know whether you are or not. I don't. You do. Good. Going in and out of that Choose Your Own Adventure, it's all very well written. It is affected, the second part, we go back into it, very much by what you've achieved during this map play, which can feel a bit disjointed and disconnected from this Choose Your Own Adventure bit of it. Don't, don't get me wrong, you still do some play and roll some dice and stuff. You do still do some combat. I mean, most of the gameplay and interactions are based around combat, usually, unless you get to a story point. If you're just wandering around, you are constantly going to be attacked by things and you're going to have to fight, and that happens again in the Choose Your Own Adventure. But how the board play affects the Choose Your Own Adventure, you don't know. 
So I've achieved something. I've, I've sent a message or I've powered something up or I've got a bit of information. That's great. It just says you've got that. And then you sit there with a thing with it written on it. I've got this bit of information. And then eventually in the story, it may come up that says, have you got that bit of information? Go to this paragraph. You go, oh, I have. Great. Go to that paragraph. Oh, that's what that did. Amazing. Some of them have huge differences. There's a goal in that first scenario, one of the two, because even the first scenario, you can go one of two dis- very distinct ways. But there's a goal in there that completely changes the whole boss fight at the end of it, <laughs> if you've done it or not. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that that goal doesn't stand out as more important than any of the others. It's quite interesting. Yeah, but you definitely feel like you're caught up within the story and things happen to you. And it can feel a bit like, okay, that's happened. I've done my best, but it's still all gone wrong or it's still all gone right. And you have to accept that the way to is too. It's an experience. You don't really know what's going to happen to you. Learning the scenarios helps because there are certain things that can be sequential. If I go here and get this, when I go there, it becomes a lot easier. So... There's a bit of learning it. There's not endless variety in the uh, encounters. And certainly to me, there's just too many combat ones. When you go to the goals, it's, it's good. Or you go through negotiation, it's good to have certain things and certain other skills. It would be good if those skills came into the game more. And I, I think there's a fan-made expansion that brings more narrative encounters into it. I know there's an expansion been made for uh, Waste Nights 2, I haven't looked into it because I haven't played this enough. I didn't really even look into the expansion. I've done that thing. If I haven't played the base game load, I'm not looking at expansions anymore. But more narrative encounters would be good. It's a very odd game. It's got tons of content. Can be frustrating. There are ways people have suggested to make it easier so you're not as frustrated. We have taken on board a couple of those. So in our last game, we played that the gear comes damaged or undamaged. And when, every time you find a bit of gear, it's damaged. And you have to take time to fix it, which is just a boring sort of mechanical thing. All our gear comes undamaged now. Yeah, well, it's not cheating. It's just been suggested, but it makes it a bit easier. That's fine by me. The game's tough enough. Also, when you heal, you have to choose whether to heal yourself or radiation damage. But again, it's sort of taken out time and taken out your agency in doing things. So we've just made it, again, one of the suggestions that when you heal, you heal three wounds and also one radiation if you played the game. I've enjoyed Waste Nights 2. I don't think it's perfect. I think it's very unusual, and I enjoy what it does. So I've given it a 79. Next game is Voyages. One to 100 players, if you want to. It's a 30-minute game at the outside, I'd say. It's Postmark Games, Matthew Dunstan and Rory Muldoon. This is the print-and-play roll and write I was going on about. It cost me four quid. It's three dice you roll, and you choose. You're on a hex grid. One tells you what direction you're going in, you choose it. One tells you how far you're going to go. And the other one, you used to do this sort of crosswordy thing called duties in the first map, that is, where you tick them off and you get bonuses for ticking off columns and rows. There are five maps available. I have played this several times, but only on the first two maps. So those are the only two I can talk about for you. But when you go around and you choose how far you go, if you land on certain areas or hit into islands and stop, you're going to be able to uh, visit out-of-the-way areas. The more of those you visit, will score your points. So you're looking to expand all around the map. You try and do that. Collect sailors. Sailors you can spend to mitigate dice rolls and change them so that you're not stuck on certain courses. Or in the first map, there's a big dread you can go and you've got enough heroic sailors because you can upgrade them. Then you can kill that and get lots of points for doing it. There are goods you can go around and collect. And then once you've got goods, you can land on islands. And you can always land on them just for straight up points, but there are certain islands you can land on to trade your goods in order to score more points. On the second map, 
there's combat strength and there's a bunch of marauders around the place and you don't have to fight them but if you're near them you can check your combat strength and see whether you defeat marauders and that can score your extra points there's also a set of these duties with the rows and columns to fill out there's individual skills which you can up level which allow you to adjust your direction or your distance or make certain skills better or whatever it might be the six of them so it mixes up a little bit it takes maybe five minutes to learn the new rules for the second map and then you're off playing with it with just slight changes and one of the key things about voyages is that the graphic design is fantastic and all the rules are on your sheet of paper as soon as once someone says it to you you say oh yeah yeah i can see it here oh, yeah, i can see that there oh yeah i can see how that works because it's not and it's just brilliant graphic design which makes the ease of play beautiful which is very important because this is basically a perfect pub game in which you're having a drink you're having a chat you get it out you roll three dice you're knocking off 15, 20 minutes later, you finish, you look at your map and you look at the route that you drew, you look at the map route that your mates drew and you look at, oh, that was fine. You did that. Oh, yeah. I can't believe you beat me to the dread. I was nearly doing it. Oh, look what you've done. Oh, you traded loads. Oh, I'm the rubbish at trading. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, you killed loads of marauders. Oh, I never got my combat strength up. Whatever it might be. It's a very pleasing, pleasant, well-made experience. It's available on Postmark Games' website. I'm not sponsored by Postmark Games. I just think it's a really good idea and I like it. Attention to detail and fun. That's going to make me happy, combine those two. So Voyages, I've given a 76. We're going to crack on to It's a Wonderful Kingdom. One or two player game, around 60 minutes to play from Le Bois de Jeu and Frédéric Gras. It's the two player version of It's a Wonderful World. It's a Wonderful World was a cube churner in which you generate lots of different colours of cubes from buildings and from throwing cards away. And once you build buildings, they generate more cubes for you or score you points for having certain things like other buildings or cubes or wherever it might be. And it was interesting in that you produce these cubes in a certain order and you could set yourself up a clever engine which produces these to do those, to produce those to get these. And in a multiplayer situation, whoever's producing most of a certain cube gets a bonus which can become important. And you were setting up your own satisfying engine. So that's why I wanted to get it to Wonderful Kingdom and I backed it on Kickstarter. It's the same thing. You are churning cubes. You're producing cubes to build buildings, to use those cubes to score points for having buildings and cubes. And they come in the same different colours and they produce in the same way. With It's a Wonderful Kingdom, two-player game, you're drafting. And the way you draft is that you there's two offers available and you add two cards, however you like, to two offers. And the other person chooses one of the two offers to take. There are bad cards, which people will be forced to take at some point. And also you can play a card face down each turn. And... The key to making this work, because we know that the core system of churning the cubes and creating the colours works at least multiplayer, was to make the draft interesting, which is tricky in a two-player game and not something that generally... Uh, I mean, like Seven Wonders Duel came up with an interesting spatial way of doing it. And there's a couple of other games that got... It's a Wonderful Kingdom didn't come up with an interesting way of doing it. And it starts falling down right from the off. When you're looking at this bunch of cards going, I don't really know what to offer you because I don't know what's coming my way. And there's an awful lot of mitigation here. And even when we get into it a bit, I'm trying to stop you getting a purple cube, but three of these cards, if you throw them away, you get a purple cube anyway. So I can't stop you getting a purple cube, so I don't really know what to do. And this draft is now a pain in the bum rather than something interesting. That whole core of making it a two-player draft, I think, through this game, off course, and it never recovered. In fact, it continues doing off course because it is a game that doesn't give you how to play it. Yes, Imperium Classics, in fact, doesn't even do it this bad. 
It's a game that says, here are some rules. Here are some modules. You must play with one of these modules. But we're not going to tell you which one. You choose. And then there's a bunch of extra rules. And they mix up the game a bit. And like the advisors can be wildly powerful or the quest you go on makes it a different game. But we're not going to tell you which one to play. You choose. No, mate. No, mate, you see, because I've never played this game. So I don't know what the best way to play it is. You've played it hundreds of times. You tell me what the best way to play the game is. That's your job. No, no, you just guess. You just go ahead and choose a module and just have a go at it and see if you like it. And not only that, but there's sometimes variants within the modules. So it's not even like, oh, this is your first set to choose these two to play. No, no, there's 10 of them. You choose whichever one you want. No, mate. You tell me how to play your game. Once I know how to play the game, then give me options. That's fine. Throw me out there. Not good enough. With a drafting system that doesn't work. The cube churning that feels quite boring. I feel like they had an idea that we can make it a wonderful world into an interesting two-player game. But they never converted those ideas and never completed them. And they didn't really consider the user experience. When you come to it and go, well, how do I play it? What? Just tell me what game to play. I find it really frustrating, as you can tell. I did not enjoy It's a Wonderful Kingdom at all. I forced myself to play it. After the first couple of games, I didn't want to play anymore. I forced myself to play it a couple more times just to review it. And he gets a 37. And what a wasted opportunity. I did not enjoy this. Penultimate game. Cross clues. Two to six players. Ten minutes to play from Blue Orange Games and Gregory Grad. It's a five by five grid. They're marked... 8E and 1 to 5, giving you 25 plots like C3 and D4 and whatever it might be. Each of the columns and each of the rows is associated with a word. They're cards that you tuck under there. So A might be wolf and 4 might be land, whatever it might be. And they all got them. And then each player draws a grid coordinate card secretly, looks at it and decides how they're going to clue one word to get everyone else to guess what their coordinate is, and they do it by associating the two words. So if I get C3, I look at what the word for C is, look what the word for three is, how do I join them together with a clue, code name style, but only ever joining two things together. But also the difference to code names is that each word is used five times, which makes it tricky <laughs> because in code names, you're only including that word with something else because they're trying to get you that word once. When you're trying to use a word five times and trying to find differences to it as opposed to the five other clues that it links with, yeah, it is a slightly different headspace and you'd think it would be easy, but it's not because you've got to be aware of what other things you can clue. The other kind of slight problem is that some of the words are very similar. I don't think the words included in the pool have been as well curated as they have been in codenames. And I'm going to compare this to codenames because that's, that is the beast. Not as well curated a collection of words, so you get very similar words or synonyms and it can certain setups become very, very difficult for what's supposed to be a quick, fun game. It's most fun when people are being dirty or doing in-jokes or just generally being funny. That's when you're going to have a good crack. Uh, you can only have one clue said at a time, so you've got to make a guess before you can move on to the next clue. So it's not mayhem with people shouting all over the place. It's someone says a word, and then everyone concentrates on that for, for a little while, hopefully a little while, because you're on a timer. And you have 10 minutes to get as many clues as you can out of 25. And it's decent. It's a decent word game, and it's fun, and it's cool, and I'll play it. But it does kind of highlight how good the best of these word games are and that it's not good enough to just throw a pool of words together without playing and playing and playing and picking out the very best ones. 
And the code name's Alice Clover. Yeah, those are the two best ones. This is grand. It's 61. Cross clues. Worth a play. The final game for this episode is one that I've really struggled to rate. It's Paleo. One to four players, 60 minutes from Hamzin Gluck and Z-Man and uh, designed by Peter Rustemeyer. The players, cooperatively, are a tribe of cave people, Stone Age people, and you're working through a deck of opportunities and obstacles each game day, attempting to score five victory points before you get five skulls for members of your tribe dying or each night when you worked all the way through the deck not being able to fulfil certain mission conditions. Because Paleo is played in scenarios, thankfully, very well-structured scenarios that say play with these modules first, your second game play with these modules, your third game play with these modules. Right, now you've played however many games, you've played all the modules, now you know the game, you can start setting your own things up. It tells you what modules to play. You'd think that would be a simple thing. There you go. I might let that go in a minute. The deck of opportunities and challenges. You split it evenly amongst the players. And then each player looks at the top three and looking at the backs of them only. And they give you indications of what you might have. Opportunities to collect resources, opportunities to go hunting for food, dangers. As you get into more advanced scenario, you might encounter weather and stuff like that. But you decide which of the three to draw. Once everyone's decided what to draw, then you flip them all over at the same time. And you look at them and you decide as a team what you're going to do. Are you going to go and collect those resources? Are you going to craft some items to improve your stats? Because certain things require you to have, well, there are different stats in the game, basically awareness or crafting skill or spears for fighting skill. And you have a certain number of cave people in front of you which have these stats on them. They might be good at hunting. They might just be good at having lots of health, whatever it might be. And you can give them tools in order to, to boost up how good your own little section of your tribe is. And then if you have enough, then you can tackle a card that requires you to have a four hunt or whatever. But if I only have two hunt, if another player has got an aid symbol on their card, instead of dealing with their card, they can come and help me and add their abilities to my abilities and perhaps we can do things together. In terms of crafting, yeah, you can boost your stats, but you can make other things like torches, which you might have to throw away in order to get past certain obstacles. Also, you can invent things so that cards come out and they give you other things which you can make, I'll keep saying things, I'm sorry. You can make tents to protect you, or you can make a campfire to keep away the snow, or you can create paintings, which will score you a point, because you don't actually know at the beginning of each game, necessarily, how you're going to score any points. It becomes apparent to you as you go through this deck and face obstacles, and there's a deck of secrets, you can unveil secrets as you play, and secrets might tell you if you do this, you can have a point. And they're for various things. It's not necessarily a pattern to them. It might be defeat a big beast. It might be, like I say, put a lot of resources into painting. It might be rescue someone, or whatever it might be. You're just trying to score these five points because at a certain point, each player is going to decide to rest when they've gone right through their deck or there's only, I think, bad cards left in their deck. Once everyone's rested, all the people in the tribe have to be fed. Now, that's, we're not one person each. We are a, a small group of one, two, three, four, five, whatever it might be of people, they all need food. For each person you don't feed, or for each person who dies, because there are various ways in which you can take damage in the game, you're going to get one skull. Five skulls kills us. Then for each scenario, there's going to be things you need to do each night in order to fulfil the needs of the tribe. If you don't fully fulfil the needs of the tribe, you're going to get a skull again. You're going to get lots of skulls. The game is tough. Even the first scenario, until you get into a pattern of how to play, 
is going to be hard quite often. We're at the point now where we will usually, I will say, most of the time win that first scenario. We've moved on that scenario two and scenario three and so on. But the game gets harder as you go through the scenarios. You think it starts hard and you go, oh, this is tough. We've really got to work together and prioritise and, and learn what we need to do and realise that, oh, we have to do that to score a point. We'd better start concentrating on that and making the right sort of thing to boost our stats so that we can do it and add together it and collect enough torches and, and have enough spears and have enough crafters, whatever it might be, in order to do this thing. So learning the scenarios is important, which is a double-edged sword because some people get frustrated because you start playing a new scenario and you go, I'm not sure we could ever have won this on our first game without getting very, very lucky. Right, we've learned a bit more on the second playthrough. We've learned a bit more on the third playthrough because we've unlocked other things and we know what certain secrets are. Even though they go back in the deck, we know that Secret 12 is that and Secret 14 is that. One of those is good and one of them's bad, so we shouldn't do that one. Without having played it, there's no way of knowing because they look exactly the same as each other. You get kind of get what I'm saying. Also, you'll learn how you can score points in that scenario. So you can start honing in on that a bit more and be like, well, don't forget, we need three of them because that's how we're going to score that point to win. Some people don't like that because you have to play it multiple times to, to improve your chances. Some people do like it. The challenge of this game is one of the most positive things for me. And it's the thing that keeps bringing me back and back and back. I like a challenge. I like being forced to think through things and working through and I'm thinking all the time in playing Paleo, but my question is, am I having fun? Because I'm not often sitting there going, oh yeah, that was great, that was funny. Remember that huge move we did, remember? And we're not kind of pointing and laughing. We're all thinking hard. We're all, there's always mitigation. There's always, oh, what if we do that, it's that, but if we do that, it's that, and that's kind of good and bad, and that's good and bad, well, which one? That's the feeling you get. It's a struggle, but of course, within that itself, that means it's thematic because life as a Paleolithic tribe, would have been very, very difficult. There's no doubt about that. Hmm. How do I rate Paleo? I'll tell you well, one more thing I want to mention, actually. It says when you start playing, don't play with four players until you're all experienced at the game. I think the game's best with four players. I think that it gives you the ability to do various things on your turns. And when you play with fewer than four, too often you have dud turns. When you turn things over and you go, oh, we, we can't do like we don't have enough or we can't do this. Or if you two go and do that, I can't do this card, so I'll just throw it away. And there's too many turns where players are doing that. Now, that's unavoidable in the game, but it's about a balance of how often it happens. And with four players, I think the decision space is bigger. I don't think it's, it's unbelievable. You, know, you can cope with it. It's not too hard. And also much more interesting of a decision space. So I, I found it very curious they put in the rule book, don't play with four. I'll say, do play with four. You're going to have a much better time playing with four. I feel more in the game. I feel like there's less sort of grindy turns. The, the day is clicking along quicker. It actually makes the game quicker, playing with more players, funnily enough, one of those rare games. I like it. It hits for me, despite doing a lot of things that could absolutely scupper a game, which to me, speaks to the fact that there is, well, mostly that I really like a difficult co-op and a puzzle and a challenge. I'd like to get my teeth into it. But also that there's a real unique experience at the heart of this. It feels a bit like Robinson Crusoe without being as Euro-y and way less rules overhead. You're making decisions, not fighting the rules at any point because you know what you're doing. It's very clear. The decisions, people's cards, when you look around the table, you can see what you get and what the threats are. So 
You're talking about the decision the team's making, not what are the rules. If I do that, do we get a plus two to that? If I do that, does that mean we get three of them and one of them and next? No, it's, hmm, do we want three wood or do we want to go and hunt that bison? Talking within the setting of the game is always a good sign for me. So there you go. Paleo, 73 with the ability to fly up or down all over the shop, depending on if I get annoyed with it or I really start loving it. I have more scenarios in the base game to play. I've also got the expansion, which down the line at some point I will be looking to play and see what that brings into it. So this is one of the games I've played enough to buy the expansion, referring back to that. Okay, my voice is definitely going now, and I think I need to go for a nap. So I'm going to say thank you so much for joining me. Next time you hear from myself or Sean and myself, we'll be talking Essen out of our ears. We are looking forward to going to Germany. We're going to be on the Dice Tower booth for a few hours over the course of the weekend. So uh, we'll give you more details about that next time we're on and tell you when you can catch us. It'd be lovely if you're in Essen. Please do just come up and say hello. We definitely get the fewest visits of anyone who goes on that Dice Tower booth because we, we don't do videos anymore. I was never in the videos and neither was Sean and we're just a little podcast that's been going for a while. So not everyone knows who we are. It can be quite funny on there. They go, who are you? Oh, I'm riding. I do a podcast on the network. People go, and move on. <laughs> I don't blame them. But if you do listen and you're in Essen, please pop by and say hello. We'll give you the uh, times and dates. Like I say, in the next episode or two. Thank you for joining me. We are a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Head to dicetower.com for gaming goodness galore. If you want to interact with us, please go to our BGG Guild. Hit us up at the gamebitpodcast at gmail.com or check us out on social media. I'll catch you next time. Music by E.O. Croaky boy.